This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 19. There may be times when you've wondered just what is the difference between true biblical Christianity and all the other religions in the world. There certainly are plenty of other religions out there. Jesus answers that question when he meets a rich young ruler, a devoted follower of the Jewish faith, but nevertheless, a man desperately in need of salvation. Jesus contrasts his failing faith with true saving faith, and by using his standards, we can easily tell the difference between Christianity and everything else. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. For now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Matthew 19, verses 13 through 22. Then some children were brought to him so that he would lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Leave the children alone and do not forbid them to come to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do so that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you want to be complete, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. So here is the contrast that this passage presents to us, and we're going to talk about them and make adjustments in our walk with God accordingly. We have saving faith in contrast with failing faith here. Two different pictures. The picture of children. And Jesus uses them again as illustrations of saving faith. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And then the rich young ruler who went away grieving when he understood the cost of following Christ. So let's talk about the picture of saving faith in verses 13 through 15 here. The first time Matthew points out that Jesus uses the illustration of infants is in chapter 18, verse 3. And we know that these are infants because of the word that he uses here in the Greek language. And Jesus recruits them as illustrations of saving faith, which features childlikeness, not childishness, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, the Bible says. And the illustration is very appropriate because like babies, unbelievers need to be brought to Christ. Because they lack the interest and they lack the willingness to come to him on their own. Infants claim no prior knowledge of the truth or accomplishments to qualify for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, no one will be in the kingdom of heaven and say, I am here because of all of these accomplishments. No, everybody who enters the kingdom of heaven is admitted by the grace of God as children. Children cannot even articulate their need of nourishment. So think back on the time when you became a Christian. You knew you needed Christ, but perhaps you couldn't even articulate it. That's because you exercised childlike faith, saving faith. 
No, Paul harmonizes this teaching when he says there is none who understands. There is none who seeks God, Romans 3, verse 11. Hence, the need for us to enter the kingdom like children. Without divine intervention, church, the natural man will suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Again, I invite you to look back on your pre-Christian days when you would suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And people who will suppress the truth in unrighteousness will make gods according to their own image. People have done it since the time of the fall of man according to Genesis 3. And that was us before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. But look at the disciples. They are still operating by the worldly value system. They started that and they demonstrated that in the beginning of chapter 18 when they said, well, who among us is the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus? They're demonstrating carnality and operating by the world's value system. And here they are again operating by the world's value system, thinking that they are the ones who decide who has or who hasn't access to Jesus. So they placed themselves in a position of bodyguards and kept people away from Jesus. As if people were the distraction of ministry. Jesus corrects them and said, no, don't do that. Don't prevent the, the, their parents from bringing their children to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So even though the disciples provide the not so mature example, the parents do. And they present an example of humility here for us to understand. Like them, we should bring our children to Christ as early as possible. Don't wait until he or she is five in order to understand Educate them in the Lord. Now, there is nothing, absolutely nothing in this passage here to indicate infant baptism. Rather, perhaps this is an illustration of Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up the child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Which speaks about our responsibility as parents to bring our children to Christ. What a great example here. Perhaps this is also an illustration for the Shema passage in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. In other words, constantly talk with your children about Christ, about God. And model that behavior as well. Of course, you can't give something you don't have. That's simple logic there. Now, you cannot bring your children to the arms of Christ literally because he is in heaven now. His resurrected body is in glory. But spiritually, he lives in the hearts of believers. Paul talks about this. He is in you the hope of glory. In other words, if you're a believer in Christ, Jesus lives in you. And therefore, you are able to bring your children to Christ by talking about him, by demonstrating Christ's likeness. Tell them about the childlikeness that Jesus expects from people to enter the kingdom of heaven. But here's something even more interesting here in chapter 15. Jesus granted the requests of these parents because he loves children. So the song is true. Jesus loves the little children, all the little children of the world. And we know that because of another aspect of the character of God that we see very clearly in the relationship that God has with little children. And what I mean by that is that Scripture provides enough evidence that His grace extends to infants or mentally disabled adults who are not capable mentally or cognitively to make a decision or reject Christ. Let these truths comfort those of you who, like me, buried your infants or lost them to miscarriage or abortion. If you are a believer in Christ... 
You're deceased or boarded or miscarried. Baby is safe forever in the arms of Christ, waiting for you when you get to heaven, if you are a believer in Christ, because you are able to put thoughts together and to understand the claims of the gospel and make a decision whether you're going to follow or reject Christ. I hope you make the right decision, because unless you exercise childlike faith, you are out of the kingdom of heaven. And exercising childlike faith is exercising saving faith. Blessed are the poor, Jesus says. And the poor people are those who understand their bankruptcy, spiritually speaking. They understand they bring nothing to the table as far as salvation is concerned. Exercise childlike faith, and the kingdom of heaven will belong to you. Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, Jesus says. That's the picture of saving faith. But this scene gives us the tragic alternative, the contrast here. And that's the picture of failing faith that we learn from this rich young ruler here, verses 16 through 22. And although he was religious, church, I want you to see that this man fell short of making it to the kingdom of heaven. His faith was not saving faith. His faith was failing faith. As far as we're concerned, this is the first time in the Gospels that someone walks away from Christ after being offered a treasure in heaven. So I want to show you four aspects of failing faith. And the purpose of that is so that if you identify any of them in your life, you make the adjustment. And if you identify any of them in somebody you know, you go and preach the Gospel to that person in compassion. So the four aspects, and I'm going to use some theological words. I don't mean this to be a seminary class, but you need to know these terms because every serious student of the Bible needs to know them. So they're important. Aspect number one of failing faith. Failing faith features the wrong view of salvation, which I call false soteriology, verse 16. The wrong view of salvation. That's very evident. By the way, this man asked Jesus his question here. He sought to earn eternal life by doing good deeds. He failed to understand that salvation must be received by grace rather than earned by works. So he's saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And church, that is the question of every false religion out there. Every false religion offers a works-based path to eternal life. There's only one true religion in the world. That's biblical Christianity because it offers the truth. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Every other religious system that offers a man-made, works-based form of salvation falls short, just like this guy right here, offers a false view of salvation. Scripture gives us a different picture. The right view, from the pen of Paul, for example, he says, For by grace are you saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Ephesians 2, verse 8. Church, a gift is something you receive If you work for it, it is no longer a gift. It's a salary. It's something that God owes you. Again, he says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. In other words, you have done absolutely nothing to earn your salvation. You don't contribute anything. You receive it by grace through faith. John says in 1 John 5 verse 12, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So you want to know whether or not you have eternal life? Do you have the Son of God? People can only receive eternal life by the redemptive work of Christ. There is no other way. And according to Paul, again, God saved us, not on the basis of deed, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's Titus 3, verses 5 through 7. 
So God saved us. You have not saved yourself. If you're a believer in Christ, if you're a member of God's kingdom, you have eternal life. That is a work of God 100%. You are on the receiving end of that gift like a child. And you received that gift because you exercised saving faith. Not the failing faith we're talking about here, which features the wrong view of salvation. Let me talk to you about the second aspect of failing faith. According to verse 17, the first part of the verse, failing faith features not only the wrong view of salvation, but also the wrong view of Christ. And that is a false Christology, the wrong view of Christ. According to both Mark and Luke, the young ruler addresses Christ as good teacher, very respectful. This man's approach was so respectful that Mark tells us he got on his knees before Jesus. He, he knelt before Jesus, a good teacher. What must I do? But church, very clearly, he considered Jesus no more than just an enlightened religious teacher. A good man, perhaps. A good teacher. Someone who blesses little children. But maybe this man heard about this teacher who issues rabbinical blessings. And he would hope that this rabbi, unique rabbi, would affirm his wrong view of the Messiah. So Jesus challenges this man's view of Christ. He's not saying, I am not good. He's saying, I am God. And unless you consider me God, you don't have saving faith. And that is the point. You can consider me a good man. You can consider me a martyr or a good, enlightened figure of history. But unless you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God slash God the Son, you do not have saving faith. And that is alarming. Many people today share this faulty view of Christ. They consider him a good teacher, perhaps a man with good morals. He has perhaps some insight into the human experience, but no more than that. As soon as his teaching confronts my preconceived notion of life, I will demote him to a martyr in history, no longer the Son of God. That is the attitude of many people perhaps that you know today. So Jesus corrects this man's faulty view of Christ. According to Luke, Jesus replied, no one is good except God alone. And that's the point. He's not denying his goodness. He's affirming his divinity. Since this man addressed Jesus using a title fitting for God alone, he says, okay, if you're going to come to me, here's what you should understand about my identity. I am God, he's saying here. Jesus affirms his identity, for example, when he says in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And what he says is that he, along with the Holy Spirit, shares the same essence with the Father. He is the incarnate word, according to John 1, verse 14, through whom creation came to be, John 1, verses 1 through 2. In him all fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, Colossians 2, verse 9. In other words, Jesus is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. He pitched his tent among humanity in order to die on the cross to save undeserving sinners like you and me. And the only reason he could qualify for that task is if he is fully God and fully man. Not 50-50, 100% God, 100% man. Failing faith denies that reality. But let me talk to you about the third aspect of failing faith according to the picture of this young ruler. Verses 17 through 19. Failing faith features the wrong view of humankind, and that is a false anthropology. In fact, it presents a too high a view of man, an elevated view of man, and a diminished view of God. Evident in this man here. He thought he was the big deal. He kept all the commandments. Jesus reminds him, that no one except God possesses the attribute of natural perfect goodness. Did you know that you are not good by nature? Did you know that your infant child is a little sinner? 
innocent. Yes, because he or she cannot articulate his or her, her sinful nature, but already conceived with the need of being saved. Now, every other religion preaches the innate goodness of humanity. You just need to find it. You just need to find enlightenment. You just need to search for it. And they may express this view, which is the wrong view of man, the wrong anthropology according to Scripture here. They express that view by affirming that society is the problem, not the sin that is in my heart. They will say, culture is the culprit here. Therefore, salvation, which is demoted to betterment, is through political reform, making, therefore, the cross null and void. Of course, that's not reality according to the Bible. Society is not the main problem. It may be part of the problem because we live in a sinful world. Didn't Jesus say in the previous chapter, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks? Our culture helps with our sinful nature. And if you live in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, you have a better picture of that societal decay and culture. But the point is, sin is in the heart. You can isolate somebody from culture and society and sin will still be in the heart because the only solution for sin is the cross. It's not society. You can reform society and culture all you want, but if you leave the heart untouched, people are going to go to hell with a belly full of food and a coat around their arms and very educated. Jesus already pointed out that man's problem is the hardness of heart. Remember in verse 8 of chapter 18, he says, The reason why Moses allowed you to divorce, it's because of the hardness of your heart. In other words, we have a heart problem. We don't have a societal problem mainly. Our problem is because we have a hard heart. Furthermore, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 states, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So church, according to these truths, the worst counsel you can give someone is to follow their heart. Because the Bible says the heart is desperately sick. The heart is hard. The heart is sinful. You need a new heart. You need a heart transformation that can only come through the new birth by faith in Christ. Exercising childlikeness. People are born sinful. Did you know that? According to David, he says in Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's saying is, I have inherited the sinful nature from my parents, like every other human being, except Jesus Christ, because he was born of a virgin. God bypassed natural conception so that Jesus would be born without the sinful nature of his parents, his adoptive father and his natural mother. As a result of every human being in the world having inherited the sin of Adam, Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes you and me. Again, you may be a very morally upright person, but you are a sinner in need of redemption. And unless you come to Jesus Christ like a little child, you will miss the kingdom of heaven. And that is the tragedy of all tragedies. And we're here in compassion telling you, please come to the kingdom of heaven. Receive the gift of eternal life by grace through faith, understanding you cannot earn your salvation. To emphasize this truth, Jesus instructs this man to keep the commandments. So Jesus lists the second half of the Decalogue here, commandments six through nine, inserts commandment number five here, and closes everything with Leviticus 19, verse 18, saying, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself, emphasizing the point that you should love others the way you love yourself. In other words, you take care of you, you feed yourself, you clean yourself, you protect your own reputation. Well, love your neighbor in the same way. Don't speak evil about your neighbor because you don't do it to yourself. Have you ever failed on that? 
Then you botched the whole Decalogue. Therefore, you do not qualify for heaven. I don't either. No one qualifies for heaven by keeping the commandments. No one can keep them. You say, Pastor, I never committed adultery. Oh, good for you. Keep it that way. But don't lust in your heart because that is adultery at the heart. If you've done it only once, you already violated that commandment. Pastor, I never pulled the trigger. I never plunged a knife on anybody. Really, have you ever spoke evil about someone? A politician, maybe? Then you committed murder in your heart. You've already violated that commandment. And don't tell me you haven't done anything because if you tell me that, then you just bore false witness. Jesus demonstrates very clearly that the purpose of the Mosaic Law is to demonstrate how much we fall short and how much we need the righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven, a righteousness not our own. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Church, how do we obtain that righteousness? By grace through faith. It's the righteousness of Christ imputed in us. Because we, we don't have that by nature. And He is the only substitute who can fulfill the law of God perfectly. And therefore, the only person who qualifies to pay the price for your law breaking and mine. And therefore, the Savior of undeserving sinners like the rest of us. But let me talk to you about the fourth aspect of failing faith. Illustrated by this rich young ruler here, we talked about the wrong view of salvation, the wrong view of Christ, the wrong view of man, and finally, the wrong view of sin, according to verses 20 to 21. The wrong view of sin, and the technical word for it is a false hamartiology. That is a word that means to miss the mark in Greek. And we see that very clearly, this man missing the mark. His response indicates that he focused on the outward aspect of the law. This was a true statement. He kept those laws outwardly. The problem was at the heart. So he missed the real issue. He focused on the, la the outside layers and forgot the, the nucleus of his whole being. He thought that his perceived adherence to these precepts placed him in a right standing with God. But he missed the mark by miles, sadly. This young ruler lacked the childlike necessary for saving faith. And that is why Jesus instructs them to go liquidate his possessions. Not because salvation is based on that, but because in his particular case, he loved wealth more than he loved God. In other words, sure, you kept all of the commandments outwardly speaking, but you are an idolater at heart because you are worshiping at the altar of money and status. So in those days, much like today, people equated material wealth with divine blessings. For the rich young ruler, walking away from his many possessions would cause him to be seen as accursed of God. Every one of his peers would look at him and say, you are now blessed of God. God is not with you. So for this man, following Christ had a material as well as a social cost that he was not willing to pay. It was too much for him. Even though Christ promised him a better treasure. Go sell all your possessions. You will have a treasure in heaven. But by doing this, I want you to know that Jesus is not prescribing something that you and I must do. And the reason we know that is because no one can be saved by charity. The problem of this man is the idol in his heart. He was not willing to dethrone that idol. And for you, it may be something different. For you, it may be an ideology. It might be a project. It might be a dream. If you're not willing to dethrone those things so that Christ can occupy his rightful place in your heart, I am afraid you do not have saving faith. So do you really love God more than you love whatever idol occupies the throne in your heart? Like the rich young ruler, many people demonstrate initial interest in Christ. 
But they walk away as soon as they realize he cannot occupy second place in people's hearts. You can't shove Jesus Christ in number three or number four in your priority list and claim that you follow him. It doesn't work like that. That is the wrong view of sin. That is a false homartiology. That's a sign of failing faith. Maybe they reject Christ grieving at this point, like this man. They say, man, I really wanted to follow Jesus. But when I heard that he requires undivided loyalty, man, I don't know about that. I'm not going to rearrange my priorities. I'm not going to dethrone my possessions or my positions or my comfort. Just like that young ruler. Maybe some of you find yourselves in a similar dilemma here. You respect Jesus. You show reverence to him. You sing about him. You come to church every Sunday. But when you consider the cost of following him, which is way too high in your opinion, you walk away from him. I have met many people who really enjoyed the fellowship, the family aspect of the church. Everybody treats everybody with love and care. Oh, man, but when I hear that Jesus wants to take first place in my life, mm, I'm not sure. I'd rather manage my own love life. I'd rather manage my own finances. I'd rather manage my own eternal destiny. I'm afraid it doesn't work like this, friend. See, the gospel excludes everyone who attempts to obtain salvation by works. The gospel shocks an evil culture. The gospel separates the redeemed from the unredeemed. And the gospel invites opposition. Are you willing to pay the cost to follow Christ? If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.